hello and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. I'm Diane. I'm a mother of three living in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to make room in my life for what matters by getting rid of the clutter and living life with purpose. I hope you'll join me on the journey to think more and do with less. We've heard all about the need to get our thousand hours outside, thanks to friend of the podcast, Jenny Urich. But what about getting our kids outdoors without us? Joining me today is parenting coach, Alana Robinson. Alana believes that a helpful development tool can be the role of outdoor play and why it needs to be done from time to time without parents. Her coaching encourages parents to ditch the overwhelm and confusion so they can actually focus on things that matter, which is right up my alley. But as always, before we get to the episode, if you have yet to leave a rating and review on iTunes, pause the episode. It takes maybe 30 seconds. Rate it, review it. Let me know your favorite episode as of recently, but I truly can't tell you how much it means when you leave rating and reviews. It really does help others find this show, and that is my whole goal of why I do this. I want other moms, I want other women, I want other people to find minimalism, to find mindfulness, to find simplicity, to find intentionality. That is my whole goal with this show. So if you leave a rating and review, you're also contributing to those women finding this show. So thank you so much in advance for that. And now for my minimalist resource, kind of piggybacking on what we talk about in this upcoming episode. Throughout the episode, we mentioned several books in regards to free range parenting and or just allowing your kids to be kids, allowing them to be dirty. Um, I've included all those in the show notes, but I want to stress the book, Let Them Eat Dirt. And I'm so sorry. I think I have cited this as a resource before, but if you haven't heard that episode, that's why I'm mentioning it again today. That book was a total game changer in my parenting. I felt a lot more comfortable with my kids putting things in their mouth outside without having overwhelm or concern that they were going to get sick. The book places heavy emphasis on the microbiome, how that's developed, how we can build our microbiome. So if that is at all up your alley or if you are someone that does find a little bit more concern when your kids are getting dirty or when they haven't washed their hands or they're doing something gross, I think this book would put you at ease. So check out the book, Let Them Eat Dirt. Again, I'm going to link it in the show notes for you and stay tuned for all the other books that we mentioned in this episode and a great conversation here with Alana Robinson. Alana, thanks so much for joining me on the Minimalist Moms podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk to you today. As I said, just before we got on the call, I love to talk about nature. It's probably the thing that I talk about the most, which is kind of strange because I do have a minimalist podcast, but I feel like so much of my life is about intentionality. And I feel as though I'm very intentional about being outside by myself with my kids and just wanting them to experience in certain ways, nature in ways that I never did as a child. So I love this topic. I'm glad that you're here to talk about nature and kids going outside with us and the importance of that. So before we get there, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and we'll get started. Absolutely. So I'm Alana Robinson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a parenting coach for parents of toddlers, preschoolers, and kindergartners. So I help parents understand why their kids are misbehaving and how to fix that without yelling, counting to three or sticker charts, bribes, any of that. I've been doing this for coming up on seven years now. Prior to that, I was an early interventionist for 10 years for children who have special needs. I'm a registered early childhood educator, and I am certified in Shanker self-regulation, proactive and collaborative solutions, 
and canon early communication. So this has been my baby for the last, well, for my entire adult life. And I absolutely love seeing parents really understand why their kids are doing what they're doing, because I find that makes parenting just that much easier. Definitely. That has been a struggle for me in pausing and remembering, okay, this four-year-old does not have the brain of a 34-year-old. That would be weird. Uh, And so what is the motivation or understand that they feel things deeper than maybe I do. They have less self-regulation. It doesn't mean I can't help them there, but I do. I feel like my husband and I can be really intense people just because that's how we treat like ourselves. And so we have these expectations for our kids that are completely unrealistic. And that has been a journey and a process throughout our parenting. So I should chat with you off, off this call about all of that, but I want to talk about going into nature, but specifically not going necessarily with our kids into nature. I'm thinking more when you say that I'm like, Oh yeah, I let my two and a half year old, my, he was like under two. I think when I first started letting him just go mosey around the backyard by himself, we do have a fenced in backyard. There's not a lot he can really get into that. I've ever felt totally uncomfortable with, but he will go out for, I mean, an hour and entertain himself. So maybe start with why this is important. And then we'll talk about some ways that we can encourage that for our kids. So why is it important? They, they leave us and they go do this on their own. So when children play, they will actually stop themselves from getting fully engaged in play if there is an adult present, because they want to please us. They want to, right, we're the higher order brain in the relationship. So they are trained basically from infancy to look to mom, look to dad, to see what we are expecting of them, and then to rise to that occasion, because that is how we keep ourselves safe. And so... When an adult is involved in a child's play, when we insert ourselves into their play or we hijack their play and take it over, our children will brace themselves for that interruption and they won't allow themselves to fully immerse themselves into a play state. And a play state is, if you've ever experienced what a lot of people call flow, it's kind of like that where time and space kind of fall away you get so involved in doing something that you know you look up and oh crap, two hours have gone by. And that's a play state. And that's the state where brains really get built. That is where that rapid brain development happens. And it is so beneficial for them because they're learning all kinds of things. They're learning conflict resolution. They're learning how to t- keep track of their bodies in space. They're learning how to use flexible thinking skills. It's so great for their executive functioning skills and, you know, using a stick as a sword or as a shovel or as a spike and thinking of things outside of the box that we put them in indoors. (laughs) We, it's great for their organization skills. They have to make sure they have all the supplies that they need to do whatever it is that they want to do. It's great for their self-monitoring skills. They have to keep track of where all their stuff is and what's going on around them. It's amazing for their planning and prioritizing skills. If I wanna climb that tree, what do I have to do first, second, third in order to get up there? There's just so many developmental benefits to it. Not to mention that outdoors is a perfectly balanced sensory environment. There's not too much or too little input of really anything when we're in nature. And I mean, yes, it can be too cold or it can be a little bit too hot, but Outside of those temperature variations, for the most part, you know, it's not too loud, it's not too quiet, 
There's no flashing lights. The light isn't too harsh. It's a really, really good space to learn. So when we accompany our kids into nature, that's fantastic. And we should absolutely be doing that too. But our kids also need time to explore outside by themselves without us hanging over them and micromanaging them and removing their illusion of risk because that's where children really learn the most. Absolutely. I all last year was a part of a nature group. It was a co-op this year. We've just kind of, some of the moms have stepped away from the co-op and we're just going to go into nature by ourselves, but have somewhat of the same dynamic. But I feel as though my kids did get that because we would hang back. We would just let them run. I mean, within limits, but I mean, they'd run pretty far at some points. And I will say, I feel much more comfortable in nature than I do on playgrounds, which is a strange thing, but yeah, allowing them some of that. I feel like they gained that flow that you're talking about because they didn't have us hovering. Usually it was a cool time for the moms to connect to even the other day we were out at a Creek and I mean, the water's not deep. It's not a rushing river. And the kids just kind of did their own thing. Again, even my two and a half year old, he was trying to catch little minnows the whole time. I didn't really interact with him. Um, and And that's the beautiful thing. I think a lot of people, when they hear unsupervised outdoor play, they think like we have to like, put them outside and shut the door and put our hands over our ears and go la 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 and that they don't exist. That's not safe in any situation, right? So it's not that you can't be watching them. Like even right now, my children are outside. I can see them through this window that's over here and they're playing unsupervised. I'm not out there involved in their play, but I can still see them. I can still, you know, check on them. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of weird extreme thinking that happens when you say like unsupervised outdoor play where people think you have to like let them like just do whatever they want and never interact with them not set any boundaries Mm -hmm. and that's not what I mean at all Mm -hmm. we just want to keep back as you said Mm -hmm. like give them the space and the freedom to do what they need to do Mm -hmm. and not be constantly inserting ourselves into it Yeah. No, I mean, I'll sit on the back porch and read and they'll just be playing in the yard for a couple hours. And it's a great way that I can read, but yeah, I want to talk more about, yes, if we're not hovering, how do we keep them safe? I mean, you gave us some examples. I do the same thing. I'll watch them. I'll be sitting at the dining room table and I can see them out back. And I'm thinking, I guess there's probably someone listening and they're like, but what if my kid puts a stick in their mouth or a rock or fill in the blank and they start choking? I think that that, uh, I don't want to like go insult someone for their fears. I don't want someone to feel like I'm not, I'm minimizing that, but the likelihood of that happening to where it's going to be harmful. I don't know. I feel like well, and there's different levels based on age, right? Age, so sure. like unsupervised play for a two-year-old with no other uh, like older children around is going to look very different than my six and eight-year-old playing in the backyard currently. I started letting my oldest son play outside in our fenced yard around the age of 15 months without me immediately beside him. Now we had a big, huge picture window in that house and I could sit at the kitchen table and work on my laptop or I could be making dinner. And I've had a clear shot of our entire backyard. We used to live on this tiny little postage stamp size lot in a suburban neighborhood. So I could see everything that he had access to from that vantage point. And if he did like put a piece of gravel in his mouth or I don't know, 
put something in his mouth that wasn't safe, I could rush out and be like, okay, we're not going to do that. Give it to mommy and take it out and set a limit around it and then go back to what I was doing. So he was technically being quite closely supervised. He just didn't feel it because there was that illusion of risk of the window in between us. And he didn't have me hovering over him being like, oh, don't touch that. Don't touch that. To be fair, when we're in nature, there's very little that our children can put in their mouth that is, as you said, harmful to them. Mm -hmm. Like putting a rock in in their mouth in and of itself is not a dangerous thing. Swallowing the rock is dangerous, Mm -hmm. but them just having it in their mouth is not a big deal. And you can very easily just calmly put, you know, do a little finger sweep and pull that out because obviously you don't want them to just like run around with it in their mouth, Mm -hmm. put a stick in their mouth. Okay. Well, they're going to build their immune system basically, right? Like the chances of them choking on it, unless they shove it down their throat, which most children aren't going to do because children do have self-preservation instincts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not going to happen. So I have, I mean, with both of my kids and my youngest is what I call a little Tasmanian devil. If there is something that he can do that he perceives as risky, he's going to do it because he wants to figure out where his limits are. But even with him, I never really had, you know, there was a few times where I was like, mm, don't put that in your mouth or, oh, we, you know, we don't suck on leaves. Mm-hmm. that's nasty and as long as we don't freak out about it they're usually like okay that's not something we do and they move on yes and I would say some kids are more oral than others and you'll notice that and know your kid well enough to know like maybe I should supervise this a little bit more when they're really young but then I also want to plug the book let them eat dirt are you familiar with that book yeah yeah that's that changed my parenting when I had my my son my first son because he was different than my daughter had been. And I was never, I'm not someone that's fearful of germs or those types of things. I've never cared too much about that, but it did put my mind at ease in a lot of ways. So I would highly recommend that book for anyone that feels they have a little bit more fear about putting things in mouth, the germs in nature. There's definitely someone listening and their child is way more attached to them and they maybe didn't start that foundation of going out in nature or they they tried to and they gave it their best effort, but they're not finding success in creating that space. I had Sarah Therese on the podcast a couple of years ago to talk about an independent play and how she tries to cultivate that in her lifestyle, but I'm wondering everyone's different in how they do this. So what would you suggest and recommend? So I always tell my clients to start small and work up to it. So if your child literally can't let you leave the room without them, then obviously you're not going to be able to send them outside to play for an hour unsupervised because that's going to freak them out and it's going to terrify them and traumatize them. So start small, see where your baseline is. A lot of my clients, they can like leave the room to go to the bathroom, but after five minutes, their kids are knocking at the door going, mommy, mommy, mommy. So if that's where you're at and you can only get about five minutes piece, then start with 10 minutes, double it. And what I like to do is I have these little things called time timers that are visual timers and you can get these on Amazon. And basically this is a 20 minute one you viewers can't see, but I'm holding up a 20 minute one. And basically how it works is there's this little disc of color. And when you set it, so for instance, to 10 minutes, it pulls the disc out so that your children can see how much time is left. And then as the time goes away, Mm -hmm. the disc gets smaller. And this works with children's natural aptitude to conflate size and quantity. The bigger, the more there is, the smaller, the less there is. So the bigger the disc, the more time there is, 
the smaller the disc, the less time there is. And generally what I do is I will start by setting a visual timer for 10 minutes and get them involved in play, get them doing something that they enjoy like Lego or playing with dolls or digging in the sand or whatever and set the timer and say, I need to go to the bathroom. I'm going to be back when the timer beeps. You're going to stay here and then go. And then when you hear the timer beep, immediately go back and be like, hey, great, make a big deal out of the fact that they stayed and played with their stuff. And it doesn't matter if they actually stay and play or if they just stare down the hall. Like the idea is just to get them used to being separated from you for 10 minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. Once you can do that and be like, hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'll be back in 10 minutes. And it's not a big deal anymore. And they can do that successfully. Lengthen it out by 10 minutes. Okay. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to the bathroom and I'm going to go get dinner started and I'll be back when the timer goes beep Mm -hmm. and then go do what it is. Always tell your kids what you're going to be doing because Mm -hmm. often children will come and find us just because they're like, hmm, wonder what mom's up to. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't tell them, they have to come and see. Mm -hmm. So let them know what you're doing because there's FOMO and always make it something super mundane. Like I'm going to go vacuum out the car. Mm-hmm. Um, now to some kids that might be really entertaining but to most kids they're like yeah that's a chore I don't want to be involved in that's something you watch from a distance mm-hmm. so let them know what you're doing go do your thing when the timer beeps immediately come back and make a big deal out of it and just keep lengthening it by 10 to 15 minutes at a time generally by time you get to half an hour you're golden if your child can do half an hour they can do 40 minutes and if they can do 40 minutes they can do an hour and once you get to an hour then you can just disperse those throughout the day. When my children were younger, we had one hour chunks in their day where it was free play time. And I would set the timer for an hour and I'd be like, okay, mommy's going to go work. You're going to play. I'm not available to you until the timer beeps. And they would play in their playroom or their bedrooms or outside. And I would actually get to go and clean up, fold laundry, have a shower, do my work, interact with my clients without kids crawling all over me. And then the timer would beep and I would go and be like, hey, great job. And then as they got a little older, most time timers only go to an hour. So I would just turn the beep off and I'd be like, hey, you're going outside to play. I'm going to set the timer for an hour, put it in the window. When the timer beeps, then you can come inside. But generally children take about an hour to get really into that play state. Mm -hmm. So Usually if they can do an hour, they can also do two hours. And if you stop alerting them to the fact that that hour is over, they'll be in their play state and it'll just whoosh by. Mm -hmm. So I would just turn the beep off and have it in the window. And usually they'd stay out two to three hours without even realizing it. So start small and work up to it and give them that predictability. The reason the timer is so helpful is because they can see the time passing. Mm -hmm. Time is such an abstract concept for kids that when you're like, hey, I'm going to be back in five minutes. Well, five minutes, if you're not doing something you're enjoying or if you're anticipating something happening can feel like an eternity. It can also go by in a blink. So five minutes to a child really means nothing to them. And when they can see the time passing, they're like, okay, this is actually moving. It's not that bad. I can see that the time is going away. It makes it concrete for them so that they're not like, okay, well, I don't know if five minutes is gone. So I'm just going to go and knock on the door and see, right? It frees them up for monitoring us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely send me the link to those. I'm sure I can look and find it, but I'll include that in the show notes for people since they can't see it. 
we're having this video call right now, but I will say, I think it also is helpful with the siblings when my oldest is nearly eight. And so I think it's helpful for the two-year-old and has been helpful since he was like the same age as your son. When you first started letting your firstborn go out there 15 months or so, um, just to see, take, take the lead from their direction. I think it empowers my daughter to set, to feel like she's helping me and being a mommy's helper in certain ways. And then for my middle son, he also wants to feel like he's helping, but again, I'm not putting them in like horribly dangerous circumstances, but yeah. But that's the fact that you even feel the need to clarify that. And at the beginning where you were like, you know, we sent him out, it was two and a half. There was nothing safe. We feel that need. Right. And that is the reason people are always blaming screens. Oh, it's because of tablets and it's because of video games that children are playing outside. No, that's the symptom. Mm. That is a reaction to the underlying reason that we don't feel comfortable sending our children outside. Mm -hmm. And that's because we're all afraid that somebody's going to think that we're lazy and that we're not keeping an eye on our kids and they're going to call child services on us. And so there's this like fear around sending our kids outside because most parents, when I say, send your kids outside to play unsupervised, they're like, I would love to, but my neighbors are going to call the authorities on me. Yeah. Oh man. That would be so silly if that happened. Good grief. What's the book? It's, um, free range children. Yes. So there's free range children, but there's, so there's that one about the, I forget their last name, Myvich, I think children. Yeah. There's also, um, small animals by Kim Brooks. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'll just be honest. I look to the past and I look to other countries and I've said this before, but we hover a lot more than people ever had. And even thinking back to probably 50 or 60 years ago, if you're a farmer and you're having children, you're going to still need to tend to your farm. And you're going to, Charlotte would be a mommy's helper all day long with the little ones. And I've been in other countries and the little kids are taking care of the toddlers, the infants even. And it's just, I don't know. I think we need to get some, some perspective, understand that things are safer now than they ever have been. And anyone listening that doesn't believe me, you can, you can confirm that. You can look up the statistics. Canada, the statistic, the latest one that I saw was that since 2000, child abductions by strangers has gone down 72%. And I grew up in the nineties and I was sent out the door at 9am and I was told not to come back unless someone was bleeding. I needed to use the bathroom or it was lunchtime. My parents had no idea where I was. We didn't have GPSs. We didn't have cell phones. We just went and ran the town and I grew up very rurally. So it's probably not the same for children living in urban areas. Now, even my children go to our neighborhood park, which is just down the road. I can see it. Like if I stand at the end of my driveway, I can see it. And I've had neighbors be like, Hey, are you really comfortable with that? Like, Hey, did you know that your kids are leaving your property? Yeah, I sent them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the, um, there was a study that was done in the UK with, um, I can't remember his name, but he went to the UK in this small town in the UK and 40 years ago, and he measured how far children were allowed to roam mm. in the late nineties. And it was like basically the entire town. The kids had the run of the town. Mm-hmm. And then he went back 40 years later and children weren't even allowed to be in their yards unsupervised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's been this massive shift and it's mainly around availability heuristics. Right. When we, even in the nineties, you got your news from the TV, your local TV and your local newspaper. 
-hmm. And so most areas, you know, hadn't experienced a child abduction in 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so our parents felt a lot safer letting us go out. We also knew our neighbors a lot more. Mm -hmm. Now we see, you know, a child got abducted in Australia and we're like, oh my God, my child could get taken at any time. Mm -hmm. When in reality, that statistic has nothing to do with what we've done here. Yeah. Yeah. I think I... I have a few friends that are close to me that think that that is a complete reality and that their child is going to get taken anytime that they go to a playground. And again, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. And that's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing, but I can't live my life statistically by that fact that it it drives me into like that. I can't do anything and that I'm so driven by fear. I just try so hard not to be driven by fear. And the fact that yes, these things can happen. That is true. But the likelihood, let's look to that. I'll be honest. I'm not super comfortable. I was probably out in my neighborhood at eight years old, going around the block in my neighborhood. It was about almost a mile around. I don't think I would let Charlotte do that right now. And she's the same age. That freaks me out. I'm not super comfortable with that. But there are other things that I think I do let her do that maybe others wouldn't. So again, I'm not trying to push people into. Know your local context. Make your assessment of the risk based on your local context, not on your perceived context or on the context of other areas. Like if you're you're in Toronto, do not make your risk assessment based off of New York. When I'm recording these or when I'm thinking through what I want to talk to my guest about and how vulnerable I want to be, or just what I want to say and what I want to share. You're always thinking about the people listening and I'm thinking of a wide variety of opinions and thoughts and experiences and in past traumas, I, I understand that most topics are very nuanced. So I always try and come from a perspective of someone that is the opposite of me, or that might be like on the spectrum of different opinions. But so I would say to encourage the people that are extremely fearful and haven't allowed their children to be more free range children, uh, expose yourself a little bit to doing so, even if it's just in the backyard and you're sitting up reading a book. And it's the same thing as like sending your child out for five minutes and then coming back in. Mm -hmm. If it's your concern and not your child's, then do the same thing, right? Start small by allowing them to play on the play structure where you just even take five steps back, Mm -hmm. five steps back and then take 10 and then take 20 and go sit on the park bench Mm -hmm. and then maybe get up and you know, walk around the park or go get your mail and come back. Do it in very slow, controlled steps that you feel comfortable with. And again, you might get to a park one day and be like, hmm, under normal circumstances, I would be totally cool with sitting on the park bench. But something in my gut today says that's not a safe thing. That's okay. It's totally fine. That doesn't have to be a blanket thing that you do, right? There's that extreme feeling of, well, I either have to be right beside the play structure all the time, or I never can be. And don't allow yourself to go to those extremes. Also, make sure you start to get comfortable with knowing the people in your community. Like if you live in an apartment complex and you're not comfortable, you would love to be comfortable allowing your seven-year-old to go down and play on the play structure by themselves but you don't yet because you're afraid of what all the other people in the building will think, start introducing yourself to your neighbors. Yeah, for sure. 
lastly, what you said is we don't know our neighbors necessarily as well as we did in the nineties. I feel like I knew every single person on my street, but I was a girl scout. So I sold them cookies or I sold magazines and it's just, yeah, there is a little bit of a difference now because we're so connected and yet we're not. So that's something to think about too. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we wrapped up this conversation? Yeah. Kids who are comfortable outside, it expands their world so much and it just gives them so much more opportunity to try things that they wouldn't try inside. Like, especially when you look at the toys available for outside versus inside, inside toys usually have like one way to play with them. Mm -hmm. There is a right way and a wrong way to play with it. And that's it. So once you use it that way, you have to move on to something else, which Mm -hmm. means that they're set shifting a lot more frequently. Mm -hmm. Whereas outside, there's no right way to play. There's Mm -hmm. also no wrong way to play. So it gives them a lot more freedom to explore and to process things that are happening in their worlds. One study showed that children who are outside unsupervised are 80% more likely to engage in dramatic play. And dramatic play is how children process all of the information that they're getting about their world and the events they've gone through. And especially for kids like who've gone through the pandemic and who have been exposed to a lot of the trauma that we're experiencing in the world right now, that's where they're going to process it and make sense of it and play it out so that they can then use that information and move on. It really does have so many benefits to them. We just have to let them do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And again, uh, never to push anyone or to make someone feel bad. That's listening. I never, that's never my intent, but people can be encouraged to know again, if people need to look up statistics that we were talking about, that is something that might be helpful for people that are more visual and they need to see those or their questioners. I'm like, I'll take the Gretchen Rubin. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I'm a questioner and I usually won't act on something unless I ask all the questions. So that's very helpful for me to be able to make my informed decision. And then I feel a lot more comfortable. So if that's helpful to you too, maybe start pursuing some of those books that we mentioned in the Mm -hmm. stats there, but where can listeners connect with you if they want to hear more from you? This was so wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, My website is alanarobinson.com, A-L-L-A-N-A (laughs) robinson.com. And uh, on Instagram, I'm at Parenting Posse. And I also have a Facebook group called Parenting Posse with Alana Robinson, where we have over 10,000 parents who are looking to connect with you and help you work through some of these issues and figure out what's right for your family. So join me to come join us there. Awesome. Well, I didn't tell you this, but I ask every guest at the end, two questions. The first one is, what is a resource that's been beneficial to you that you would like to share with the listeners? I really like, the Center for the Developing Child at Harvard's website. They have so many really easy to understand info sheets and um, breakdowns of different research. And it's, it's a really, really cool resource that a lot of parents don't know about. And it's often where I will first go when I'm reading research to see if they have a breakdown of it before I actually read the research because It helps me kind of peruse what's important and pay attention and often notice things that I may not have noticed otherwise. So, and if you don't have time to actually go and read, you know, a 400 page paper, then it gives you the nuts and bolts in very clear language. And they have all sorts of like little activities and things that you can do with your kids on there to like work on their executive functioning skills or work on their self-regulation. And it's just a really neat little 
thing that's completely free on their website and very well regarded. Cool. Um, send me a link to that. I'll include that in the show notes. And then lastly, what is something that you can't stop talking about? And this can be something silly, something serious, whatever you can't stop talking about. Oh, lately it's been car seat safety. Oh yeah. that's very <laughs> I'm cool. a child passenger safety technician as well. And, um, when it gets to be warm here in Canada, all of a sudden I start getting a whole bunch of people being like, ah, can you come and check my car seats? Um, I've done 42 car seats in the last three weeks and none of them have been correct. So <laughs> if you have never had your car seat checked by a technician, please go do it people because your car seat is statistically likely installed incorrectly. Oh no. See, mine probably is if you're saying statistically that's true, but my toddler always wants to take it down, but then if it's too tight, I can't get the happy medium. And I mean, I just end up having to pull over until he'll put it back on. I don't know what else to do. Well, and it might be like a lot of the times that's because either the recline can be adjusted so that they're more comfortable. Often children will pull the straps off because they're too reclined and they they need to sit up. So oftentimes we can get the seat more upright. Um, Sometimes it's just where the chest clip is hitting. And sometimes it is that we're over tightening the chest, the seat belt. And um, one trick that I always tell parents is to pinch the webbing at their collarbone before you tighten it, like just pinch a little fold of it right at their collarbone and then tighten it. And until the pinch pops out of your fingers. And then okay. Stop. Okay. Interesting. Because often we'll tighten it so tight that they can't breathe. Cool. Well, thank you for the tip. But again, thank you for all the tips that you brought us today. This was wonderful, as I said, and I just appreciate the conversation that we had. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. What did you think of the episode? I invite you to keep the conversation going at minimalistmomspodcast.com. There you'll find links to the Instagram account, Facebook page, and where you can find me all around the web. Thank you for joining up on this journey. I wish you a lovely week as you think more and do with less.